I think we have uh, started. Um, welcome to the debut episode of uh, Call and Shots on the Call and App. I'm Seth Partner, the host. Uh, my guest today, Ben Taylor, is uh, fixing some technical issues, uh, basically getting the app installed on the right phone, and, and then we're, we're good to go. So um, I think I will vamp for a moment while he is coming on. I uh, prepared for this possibility by... Uh, asking for some audience Q and A, kind of, kind of beforehand. So, uh, grab some people had some some pretty interesting questions on on Twitter for me. Uh, the last couple days, uh, we're going to be talking NBA. We're going to be talking NBA from a uh, statistical perspective, somewhat. But I think there's a lot of things that we can talk about, big picture, small picture, that sort of the conversational style uh, allows that maybe more traditional podcasts don't. Uh, and so there's a lot of people I know who are kind of in and around basketball, whether like have been with teams, have uh, do do other things, whether it's with agencies, uh, data providers, things of that nature. So we're going to try to, uh, you know, talk to a lot of different people about a lot of different things and, and hopefully uh, spark audience interest and, and uh, go from there. So let me see. Um, <laughs> um a lot of questions I got. Uh, this is one of them is from uh, a longtime uh, friend and, and one of my kind of one of my favorite local writers, Britt Robson. The question he asked is: Should the NBA experiment with doing away with the de- defensive uh, three-second rule and maybe try it in the G League or during preseason to see what the impact really is? Um, and there's a lot of questions about changing the court dimensions. Um, I think that yes, experimenting in the G League is good. I think that the NBA ecosystem is so um, it is is so complex that really testing it is is um, is going going to be a key before we we make any of these big changes. A lot of people ask all the time about should they move the three point line back, and it's like oh maybe maybe that can rebalance kind of the shot selection in the NBA. The problem is if you move it back too far, then it's almost and and only like 10 guys in the league can shoot reliably from that distance, then it's almost like you don't have a three-point line and we're playing rugby again, uh, like kind of it was in the late 90s, which, you know, could be cool in high-leverage games, but for the average kind of Tuesday night contest between two decent teams was actually pretty unwatchable. Ben's here. Hi, Ben. Oh, I hope he's here. So, hi, Ben. Uh, Hi. This is... is, um, this is sort of a tradition w- between us, I think, was whenever I kind of start a new thing talking to people, you're the first person I think of to talk to. And I'm not sure why that is. but I think Well, it's I think it's because of our fumbling technology skills. I think that's everyone knows that. I appreciate you thinking of me, and hopefully in post, no one will have any idea what we're talking about. They'll say, what are, they, what are these guys talking about? The show started without a hitch. Yeah, Seth, Seth vamped for a little bit, and then Ben showed up. <laughs> so... um. I think we've we've part of the reason I wanted to talk to you actually is we've talked offline about this a fair amount, and it's maybe subsided a little bit recently. But for a while there, there was some pretty hot and heavy talk about like who is the MVP in the league, and there was a lot of you know there's a groundswell behind Steph Curry for obvious reasons. And I think you were one of the main people who were like, hold on, like Nikola Jokic is awesome and having a historic season, and why aren't we talking about him enough? So. And I think that, the, like, as with always with, with these postseason awards, it, it's less about, you know, taking aside partisans from a particular team or a particular fan base. It's less about who's actually, you know, good or not, and much more about your view of, like, what these awards constitute, what they, you know, what this sort of the, the, the meaning is. And so I kind of wanted to get, hear your thoughts on why, um, on, on you know, make make the case for a player on a team hovering around 500 over over the best player on the best team in the league. Well, do you want me to make that case specifically, or do you want to also address, which I think is maybe the larger point? Yeah, I think. which is which is that like the the criteria and the definition of these awards are so fluid. Yes, um, and that's you know that's actually kind of part of my my case or the discussions I was having around Jokic earlier in the year where forget even MVP is there an award that has like an agreed upon criteria that we all say this is the single this is the single meaning of this award or aren't they all kind of fuzzy I'm I'm thinking off the top of my head 
Maybe rookie of the year is yeah, the rookie, closest. Rookie of the year seems like it's sort of the closest. Yeah. Um, that like, although we never, we very seldom get the odd circumstance where it's like a guy who's who's pretty good on a very good team versus a guy who's like destroying stuff on a very bad team. We we like if that happened more, we'd have we'd have maybe more of a case. But it's kind of hard to think of a, of an instance where. Um, like that that's actually been the situation i think we maybe got a little bit last year almost where it was almost like the tie break between Lamelo and anthony edwards was charlotte was better than minnesota mm. but yeah yeah so i think for mvp obviously sort of the biggest individual award in the league and then in addition to that i mean there might be some awards that are slightly more fluid in criteria like most improved player is an interesting one, but MVP seems to have this intersection of what we think of as the best player, what we think of as the most important player, the most valuable player, the, um, you know, the kind of story of the season. You've heard that language. So there's a couple different ways to look at what the spirit of the award means. And you asked me to make the case, I think, was it back on the podcast this first came up uh, when you were doing Nerder? or when I was doing Nerder, and, you know, you mentioned, like, 500 teams. I, a, I think I have no problem with, a, with an MVP personally coming from a 500 team, but that's less of the point, I think, with Jokic. I think the bigger point for me with Jokic is for a guy to have an historic-level season and not get a large MVP share, even on a 500 team, is unprecedented. And, you know, we can quibble about what it means, like 39 wins, 43 wins, 45 wins, what's the cutoff. But certainly Denver, with Jokic, has played above 500 pace pretty consistently since the beginning of the season. And historically, whether it's Moses Malone or Tracy McGrady or Kobe Bryant or Russell Westbrook, I mean, the list goes kind of on and on when you look at these big seasons where someone's doing something that we consider historic, all those guys get huge MVP shares. And, you know, that's just my, my personal take. I never really have too much of an issue if you give it to Giannis or, uh, in this case, Curry. I think those, these are all the big names, right? But my thing with Jokic has been, like, for people to kind of discount him is either to set a new precedent or maybe the more like egregious thing in in my perspective is to just completely overlook how well he's playing. That's, that's the, that's the case for me. Sure. So there's a couple different things here. One, I think there's a bigger picture here is like, what are these awards kind of for? Is it like to give a trophy or even a, like a, like a second, third place ribbon, (laughs) I guess for like the individual players, or is it something you know, from a you're someone who who takes a very like long view, historical view of the game. Mm, yep. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> to, to put it mildly, um, uh, for for those that don't don't know, uh, uh, Ben has done a ton of historical work on on kind of the, the the top players of all time to try to you know even controlling for era who is the who who are the guys who are really you know the top the topest of the top players in NBA history. So this is a, this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. It is, um, yes. But and control, controlling for error and controlling for error, I would say, is the two <laughs> two hardest parts of that. But keep going, right? So I mean, so it seems like a lot of this is. I mean, one way it's been it's been you know the the for lack of a better term is the story of the season. Like you you want a snapshot of of what was the NBA about that season. And the MVP seems like a pretty good place to start with for, you know, who is the guy of the season, you know? And on, on some level, that's who's the best player. But I think, you know, the, the, maybe it's a fault of the way we view the regular season as sort of a prelude to a championship run. But it kind of seems like, you know, the story of the season can't be a guy who didn't matter in, in you know, May and June. Or, or and, and had no real equity to matter in May and June, and so a guy on a you know the, the Nuggets are weird because maybe they get some guys back and, and they're like they're 
you know, a playing team who nobody actually wants to play because they're obviously, you know, suddenly Jamal Murray's back healthy and Michael Porter Jr.'s healthy. And this is obviously a much better team than the seventh seed if that sort of happens. But in general, like a team that winds up as like the six, seven, eight seed in the, in a, in the conference is not a team that has much actual, like, you know, they may be a tough out is like, is, is, you know, the almost pejorative way, the left-handed compliment of, of, for that kind of team. So if, we're, if the story of the season, like, how does that fit in? Or am I, am I being too circumstantially driven? I mean, I think that's my problem with the story of the season sort of approach. I don't, I don't think it has no place, as, as we've said. It's a fluid award, and I really don't see a huge reason. I mean, on some, on some level, it would be nice to have a consistent criteria, but the league obviously wants to drive conversations and spark debates, and it's, it's a fun thing to debate. And I think generally, as long as we kind of look at the top two, three, four vote getters, we do a pretty good job of capturing those guys that are most important or best or most valuable asterisks or caveats for any time you've got like two or three MVP-ish players on the same team. Um, they obviously eat votes from each other. But it's less about like the story of the season not being a thing for me and more about, well, if you're going to pick one, how do you say which one is the story of the season? I mean, if I say the 2006 NBA regular season, what comes to mind for you? Ah, uh, man, I can't even remember. Well, see, there, it's, 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 like, but, but you can probably tell me who was the MVP in 2006. Uh, was, that, was, that, was that Steve Nash or am I missing? That was, was that Steve Nash, else? yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's always, this is always tough for me because, like, um, you know, some people, when they say 2006, they mean 2006, 2007. And some people, when they say it, mean 2005, 2006. And so it's no, like, that, really no that I have to be dogmatic about. When we say yeah. 2006, we mean 2005, 2006. That the November and December has always been the sort of hanging chad of the NBA season. Um, but, I mean, that's kind, of, that's kind of the point. We could do it for different years. I wanted to go kind of a little bit back in time that it wasn't immediately recognizable, but not too far back for... Um, younger listeners, but it's like a lot of people would say Kobe Bryant's season. Um, a lot of people would think of maybe Dwayne Wade because of the playoffs, because the playoffs have such an outsized effect on our memory and things like that. Um, you know, depending on where you are, that's LeBron's kind of first huge all NBA. Like that, that was a kind of a breakthrough season for him. And I feel like a lot of years in NBA history have that characteristic, right? Where, there's two, three, four big storylines. And to say this one storyline is the storyline of the season. I mean, Derek Rose won MVP in 2011. Uh, if I had a vote, I would not have voted for him back then. In retrospect, I still don't think off the top of my head I would have. But, you know, was that a bigger story? Is that something that people remember more about that season than the Heatles coming out and struggling and then what happened with Wade and LeBron after they started nine and eight um, or any of the other kind of teams or players of that season. And then again, the playoffs kind of, you know, with Dirk and the Mavs, this is my issue, right? If I'm making sense with just picking one guy and saying, being the arbiter and saying, he's the story of the season. So your, <laughs> your problem is more with, with the, with, with voting than, uh, you, you're, you're anti-democracy is what you don't get it. Uh, I, I don't know, but maybe I'm not selling yeah. you well on this. I'm just no. I'm I think just, I, it's it's. I mean, I think that this is so. So for for additional context, like a lot of this comes out of uh, you know friend of the show and author of the foreword of my book, Tim Bontemps. Uh, you know, does a does a straw poll every year, and it, and he's not he's not you know he is he does he does look look ask for top five, but it, but it seems like the top line result from this year was. Was it was very much like Steph Curry was the guy getting first place votes, uh, and and to the and so the share of, of kind of voting points that Jokic got was he was a distant fourth. Um, yeah. I think it had. The, I mean, I think the general consensus is at the time that like and, and still like the 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 short list for MVP this season is 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 Steph, KD, Giannis, Jokic, and you know. I'm sure someone will yell at me for that LeBron is creeping in there. I don't think so yet, but that's a- actually the latest one I've seen is DeMar. 
I mean, that's frankly, that's I mean, that's based on how MVP has been awarded in the past. I think he's actually got, you know, based on sort of the clutch time game winning moments and like uh, nobody has ever hit buzzer beating game winners on consecutive days ever, um, which was which is fun. And doing it across two calendar years is even more (laughs) You know, it's a, that's even a, that seems like a, like a, going to be a paradox. That's going to be a trick trivia question someday, I think. But yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a reasonable top five, right? I mean, certainly the top four and then whoever the fifth guy you have is, is, you know, that, that's a reasonable way to fill that slot. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think they generally do, um, doing a lot of historical work, I can, I can point out a lot of areas where I think voters, either got it wrong, over-indexed on something, or just in the past didn't have the kind of information we have now. I tend to think most of the voters and most of the accolades are more informed, smarter, more nuanced, etc. But they tend to get, in MVP, the big names kind of at the top, and then there's always that, like, Isaiah Thomas vote. Um, I think DeRozan would be that right now of a guy like Carmelo Anthony getting a first place vote to not let LeBron win unanimously. You think there's always things like that, that kind of trickle in once you get past the top three, four, five names. So yeah, I think they, they tend to get it right. Um, But where were you, were you, were you going back to the original, how this whole thing started with us? Yeah, I was just, I was just kind of, I I was like, so again, I was, I, 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 had a, I had a reason for doing that. It escapes me now. But I just sort of where this 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 came from. It's not just like the fact that Jokic was fourth, but that he was a the a distant. distant fourth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and I and I actually checked it because I I knew this at the time of the poll, but I I didn't have you know I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. But I actually went back <coughs> and looked up some of the voting shares on guys that were on five hundred teams now before like nineteen eighty one. Uh, I believe is the year uh, the players voted on it, and then the media started voting on it after '81. So even just in the media era, you have a ton of seasons. I mentioned Moses Malone in 1981; he had a 261 vote share. That was right around where Jokic is. He was on a 40-win Rockets team that year. But you, the, instead of going through them all, you can just look at recent ones, like 2014 Joe Kim Noah. 2015 <laughs> Russell Westbrook. These these are vote shares around 25%, which was where Jokic ended up in the straw poll, which is what kind of drew my um, curmudgeonly ire for the day, if you will, because I'm just like, wait a second, this is this is disproportionately out of whack, unless you don't think his season's that good, and that to me is part of this conversation of like, wait a second, his season is that good. So I think that like the notion of his season is that good. That gets us into something that I've been thinking a lot about, like the last two years. Like, and and I, I perhaps hubristically in in my book wrote about, hey, the 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 twenty 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 one season is going to look like a like an outlier in retrospect. And then once we get back to normal basketball, uh, we'll, we'll see. That was the weird season. And then, of course, you know, not to make light of it, but you know, we've had obviously the in the last month, you know, hun- like. Hun- a hundred and some players kind of cycle through the health and safety protocols. And, and I don't know how many, you know, hardship 10 days uh, showing up so that we're, you know, well on our pace to, to have the most players ever to appear in NBA season this year. And the upshot of that is like, these guys aren't just, you know, the, the 15th man on our roster, just with some of these situations, you have Derek Walton coming in and getting signed for a couple of days and playing 35 minutes a night and then disappearing. Um, and so that's that, that adds an additional wrinkle to it. If it's like, okay, his season, but what even does that? How do you even do you even calibrate that for what's what's going on this year? How do you know? Like like these, these circumstances seem like they're so potentially variant between players that this, this this sort of the normal tools we have to compare and weigh players are just are like, do they work? Will they work? It. It's funny because I think this season feels more stable to me than the last, you know, ever, ever since the shutdown, basically, um, where we at least have fans back in the arena and kind of a steady flow. Well, we had a steady flow until the, the Omicron outbreak, it feels like, where now teams are just getting slammed and we've accrued 
most of those games missed from health and safety protocols. And I imagine, yeah, if that continues for the rest of the season, it's going to make kind of mincemeat of our regular tools because the more guys are shuffling in and out of the lineup like that, the more you have these extremes on the edges where instead of, I mean, the Nuggets themselves are a great use case for this, which is part of the reason why I think Jokic's season and specifically his offense has just been so ridiculously incredible where it's a big difference, right, between playing an eighth or ninth or tenth guy on a typical team and just these players that are literally coming off of the streets because you're on to what would amount to like the third or fourth string set of guards in your backcourt. So it's funny because I I feel like if I had to bet, I think what you said in your book is probably what I think we're moving toward, where we're going to look at those seasons as more of outliers. Um, But yeah, it makes it hard to use the traditional tools or rely and, and give them the same weight that we have in the past when all of a sudden, I mean, knock on wood, hopefully it's not for the rest of the season. But if, if you've got three or four months of your season where you're cycling through hundreds and hundreds of players, it changes things. I know it's already broken all my scrapers because somebody thought there wouldn't be more than 500 players needed <laughs> in, a, in a season. And now we're at 536 which we've never had before. So anyway, I'm sorry. That's for my therapist. Keep going. <laughs> no, I, but, but I think again, as, as someone it, like, I don't, I can't think of a better person to, 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 to help contextualize this in terms of like, you know, there's already sort of these last couple of years, like there's already like, I don't like to talk of asterisks, but there's already, okay the Anthony Davis shooting performance in the bubble. We know that's kind of, we don't know. We strongly suspect that's kind of a thing on the side. And that doesn't devalue the Lakers winning the championship. That happened. He shot the crap out of the ball. He did that. But it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, that is so not of a piece with the rest of his career that how do we, how do we integrate that into our, our opinion of, of, of him as, as a player as we're starting to, you know, he's not at the end of his career, but in five or six years, as he sort of winds down, as we start to evaluate the whole of his career, like, how does that fit in? How does last year fit in with, you know, it was a, you know, uh, I've written a lot and a lot of people have written about how it, it was a very kind offensive environment from a shooting perspective, from a, a foul drawing perspective, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, we had so many players put up just like ludicrous numbers. And, and so what to make of, what are we going to make of Julius Randall's season last year? Um, now, obviously, there are some players who are kind of, you know, Zach Levine, for example, is kind of backing up his, his last season this season. So now, okay, that, that, that has a way of making, you know, his 2020-21 season look more real. And so we add more weight to it, whereas – you know, Julius Randle hasn't just regressed, he's kind of cratered. And and so that like, you know, we're we almost can discount last year even more. Um so do, okay. do you like what am I, like, Yeah. Let me let me let me try to contextualize it briefly. Yeah. I, I actually so in general, and this is a reason why when I did uh, my greatest peak series since nineteen seventy seven on YouTube, I tried to look at multi year stretches. I think in general, we really need multiple perspectives in basketball to talk about guys and understand like 30 games that can be a nice sample for certain stuff but I really want to see you in multiple seasons multiple environments multiple playoff opponents to really help triangulate on this picture because basketball is this great sport where we kind of always have a pretty good idea of what's going on but the picture it's hard to get the picture in HD you know, sometimes it's sometimes the reception's pretty good. Sometimes it's a little fuzzy. So I feel like we always need multiple seasons. The challenge here for me is less about Randall or less about Anthony Davis. There have been outlying um, single seasons. There have been outlying playoff performances with shooting because the samples are really small. Guys can get hot, et cetera, et cetera. I think less about those guys, and I think about more of the players whose sort of um, either the heart of their career or the fat part of their acceleration curve is happening, we think, right now. So this could apply to Jokic, um, him being in the part of his career, peaking potentially the last two-plus seasons, starting with the bubble, 
when you know he slimmed down and started to get in better shape. But I even think of someone like his teammate, Jamal Murray, who, uh, God, I can't remember off the top of my head, he's always younger than I think, but you have a guy who, in the bubble, had this breakout emerging and playing at a certain level. He comes back last season before the injury, and he's also playing very well. It's a different environment, and it's not necessarily the craziness of the bubble, but you're still looking at him going, okay, is he going to be like one of the better offensive players in the postseason again? Um, there were no fans. Now fans are back. These are the guys I'm thinking of, even even the Donovan Mitchells of the world. Like, I think we need a longer lens to contextualize those kinds of players. I'm less worried about the one-offs because I feel like there's always been one-offs, either small sample in the postseason or just you get you get that Jeff Ruland Washington bullet season. I'm going way back to the people in the chat. Um, that is the name I was not expecting yeah. to hear today. But thank no, you. that's what that's what I'm here for. I'm here to throw Jeff Ruland into the chat. But anyway, that's kind of how I see it. And I think it's one of those things where I'm I'm still kind of in wait and see mode. But Obviously, if we go multiple years like this, it's going to just make it really hard to talk about these seasons in the same way we talk about other seasons. So where does that leave us? Um, it, leaves us it leaves us hoping that things normalize. Because I think, like I said, if I had to bet, I feel like things are getting a little more sturdy on the ground. Um, one thing for me, which is especially given time because i got to run, but we are like would be way outside the scope of this discussion and a separate discussion is even with offenses still doing well, I feel like I'm seeing a little bit more normalcy on defense where when the top teams play, if you have defensive issues, they're like exposed. And if you have good defensive personnel, they actually slow down the other offenses. And so I feel like I can get a grasp on scouting matchups. Whereas last year, I'm just like, I don't understand. I don't understand. These teams are playing five, six foot six players, and they're all bad at defense, but they have an average defensive rating. I can't exp- Oh, oh, their offensive rating is 128. I just feel like as long as we're not in that craziness, then I can at least get a slightly better grasp on things, and maybe we can go from there. It feels like there was, that was a shot at the Bulls this year somehow. But I no, that was not a shot at the Bulls. <laughs> I, was think, I was thinking of another Eastern Conference team high in the standings. It was not the Bulls. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, oh, so... Uh, um. Yeah. So, what do you? What do you? Uh, um, before I, I know, I only have you for a couple more minutes. But uh, so, what are you expecting to see the rest of the year? Now that you're you're seeing, you think you're seeing normalcy, not normalcy, but kind of that 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 uh, the, the the physics of the league have 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 recovered from sort of the the suspension that they were in in the fanless environments. Yes, I, I suspect this is the case, but now the problem is what happens if we continue to go through these stretches month by month like we have in the past, where last year it was more injuries off the top of my head. It wasn't COVID protocols, but it gets really weird when, like take Memphis, for instance. So um, I talked about this on a podcast yesterday. I have stuff up on YouTube about this as well, but like when John Morant missed 12 games, some crazy stuff happened with their team performance and their shooting. The, the Grizzlies went 10-2, and two and people were wondering if Jaw was a negative and if it was the kind of Ewing theory stuff. But just for this conversation, if you go through their schedule, they kept hitting teams without star players or key starters. You know, it was like, we play Philadelphia, but Embiid and Curry are out. And then we play, um, even Oklahoma City, this, they played Oklahoma City twice in that stretch, but... Even Oklahoma City, it's like Oklahoma City not having Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Josh Giddy and even one more starter, like you're down to G-leaguers at that point. And so how do you compare that schedule from one night to the next? How do you compare the team performances and the individual performances when in a course of a normal season you may have, I don't know, each team may get like five or ten games like that, but instead some team has like 50 games like that and another has 20 and through luck, another has 11, and their next closest team in the standings has 36. It just, that's what makes it really hard. So, oh, and they, and especially in a case like that, they sort of they're not just like interspersed 
like you know the, the there's the you know you have your you lay five eggs a year where you just kind of okay you get off the floor and you burn the tape and you never think of it again and those kind of happen all right we had one in november and we'll have one in january one or maybe two in march and but uh, we just forget about those but instead like you have like you know you're talking about memphis they, they played for you know two solid weeks they they played sub nba rosters yeah and you know all of a sudden their defense is a lot better because opponents you know had been hitting every open three for you know the first couple of weeks of the season and then they play this these less talented roster and big part of the less talented rosters they're playing is guys aren't as good shooters and so all of a sudden their defense is much better because opponent jump shots aren't going in and then like you know so then that leads to some weird stuff with some just ludicrous it's kind of normalized now that he's gotten back on the floor but you know for a while jaw had like the the biggest on off split in opponent three point percentage which yeah uh, parenthetically is, is, uh, another word for that is luck. Um, <laughs> um, so he like, and so it's like you, like this Ewing theory is like, okay, well actually the, the, the coin flip just happened to coincide with when he was out of the game. And, and, and so how do we resolve that? And that's, you know, that's, that's an easy one to explain at least because there's, there's even without getting into the particulars of the rosters he was facing, it's just like that, that, dichotomy and like just opponents making shots or not it's like okay well that's that's something that's that's sort of exogenous to job being there or not mostly so yeah so let's 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 leave it on this note let's say it this way when we when we stopped the season in 2020 looking at what the heck the bubble was going to be was a mystery last season we didn't get fans back really until the postseason and so there were these things when you when you tried to stack up the playoffs or what all it meant or compare teams that still felt very alien or strange to me compared to a normal season. Right now, we're 30-something games in. We, we played like a trimester, kind of roughly maybe before teams started to get decimated with the health and safety protocols. I think if we can get some solid stretches in the second half of the season... I'm going to feel a lot better about the traditional methods of matching teams up and kind of, you know, the top teams in each conference play each other three or four times. What did it look like on film? The key players were there for most of the games. I'm feeling good about that. Knock on wood. As long as we have that, if we head in the other direction, Seth, and, and like nobody's healthy for the rest of the year. And when you're looking at splits on guys in and out of the lineup and nothing makes sense. Uh, I'm going to be back where I was last year, curled up on the couch in a corner, weeping, trying to figure out what to make of the postseason. <laughs> yeah. Um, before before I let you go, um, guys, I'm going to I'm going to folks who are listening, I'm going to stay on and, and take some take some questions if people have them. So if people want to want to jump in the queue while Ben and I wrap up, I can I can bring you up on on stage to to chat for a second after Ben jumps off. But uh, um, before I wrap up, like. You know what? What do you what do you think the story of the season is going to end up being? From a like, like you know, COVID aside, like just looking at basketball, where 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 do you see this going? Or is that you? Or do you just not want to make those kind of predictions? Like, no. Well, I'll I'll say it as of today. Um, I do think it's going to be contingent on what happens in the playoffs. But I really think this is a season that could be. And in the large scheme of their dynasty, it might not stand out unless you, you know, lift up the hood and start looking at years. Um, but the Warriors, to me, and what they've done and how they've done it and how they've done it relative to expectations, if they fizzle hard in the playoffs, I don't think that'll be a story. But if they have pretty strong playoff success or even, of course, win the title, that seems like the dominant basketball story because it goes back to the thing you mentioned about my perspective. It's a long lens story. It, it changes the shape of a dynasty, right? It says, okay, now this crew that came in in 2014, 2013 and took off and won a championship in 2015, they're back in 2022. And I think most people listening know the Celtics won um, 11 championships in 13 years with Bill Russell. My guess is what most people do not know is that when Bob Cousy and Bill Sharman and their heralded backcourt aged out in the early 60s, people started writing that the Celtics were too old and that the dynasty was up. And they would go on. They, they undersold them in the media. Those stories undersold them by 
about six or seven championships. <laughs> so a landmark year for that dynasty would be when Kuzi retired and they kind of shifted. Sam, Casey Jones got more minutes and um, Sam Jones, who, who we just lost this week, got more minutes. He was a great player. Um, and all of a sudden, the Celtics and their defense, Russell even talked about it years later. He said, like, 1964, that was the year. That was our best defensive year. We came in and we trucked people. And in going back in history and unearthing some estimates of metrics and team performances, that year jumps off the page as well. So I think from the long lens, to me, it would be the Warriors um, if if nothing goes too crazy in the postseason and you know, just just based on what we've seen in the first third of the year, I do think that's a that's a huge story. Um, and if you're if you haven't lived through or studied one of these really sustained dynasties in NBA history, like the '90s Bulls, like when they came back, that second three peat. The first three peat was cool, right, Seth? But that second three peat, that was like Beatles mania. That was like absolutely crazy how insane that was. And and you know, I think when you have a you, a three-year run is nice, but when you have a six, seven, eight, nine-year run, I think it changes things. So that would be the story to me. The interesting thing about that is I, there was I, you know, I recollect there being almost a little bit of backlash of people almost being bored of those Bulls, and I sort of feel like how the Warriors, like the backlash to the Warriors, already happened in the KD years. And now it's like, all right, these guys again. These guys are fun. I like these guys. <laughs> I feel like that's that that's that's an interesting dynamic that's that's happened now. They're they're still polarizing. Yeah, um, I think for that reason. But I I I, I think you're right. But it wasn't in, it wasn't in '96. It was the fifth or sixth championship that I, I felt like the Bulls had that. And I and the, on a related note, I think like, oh my god, if the Bulls played in the social media era, oh, how god. how polarizing would it be? It would just be it would be a mess. Um, last last question before I let you go. Um, I've sort of felt like we're on the verge of kind of turning a page from one era of the NBA to another, and maybe I mean, you know it's it's for lack of a better term, it's the LeBron era. Like I it, like you just can't help but feel we're approaching the end of that. Is that something where we might kind of something that you think we might see this year as in in the past is maybe this year or or maybe in retrospect, we see it as the bubble championship. But at some point, there's like the page turned, and now it's it's Giannis's league, or now it's the league of like the Trey Trey Young and John Morant and whoever else is in Luka Doncic and, and whoever else is kind of the next thing. Does that does it feel like we're kind of in that bit to you, where you know you've got LeBron, you've got Chris Paul, you've got Steph that are they're they're holding on, but it's like you can see their time coming. I noticed you left Jokic out of the the new blood, um, the list. Of guys. I, <laughs> I, this, no, I was thinking. I was thinking. I mean, I was obviously. I was thinking like younger. Like he's in that sort of him and Giannis are kind of in that that middle kind of bridge generation almost. Well, ev- every kind of great era bleeds and fades out into the next one, and it's it, you kind of always need that twenty twenty hindsight to figure out. Uh, yeah, that was that was a legit changing of the guard or beginning of the decline. Um, I think it's a little bit harder right now because these guys, LeBron first and foremost, have just completely warped our perspective of the agent curve. Like, like longevity is off the charts. It, the latest generation of athletes. I mean, I, I don't watch football anymore, but isn't Tom Brady like 44, 40? He's like, he's, he's like, like an, he's like an NHL defense defenseman in like the, the he's, 90s. he's a he's like, a punter yeah <laughs> so you know I, I think that makes it a little tricky to back in the old days it felt really easy you know guys were there for eight or ten years and a, and a new group came along and it was easier to see the declines and the cliffs um, when they fell off and now I, I definitely think it's probably a slightly different thing with the longevity and post-prime careers that, I mean, Chris Paul, first and foremost, is a great example, but it is possible we kind of look back on these couple crazy seasons, and when we get a little more mileage, the newer, I mean, you mentioned Trey Young, but even guys like Mitchell or Booker or just just these guys that end up becoming, it's it's kind of weird, Seth, sometimes how seven, eight, ten-time All-Stars sneak up on you. I noticed that doing my 75th anniversary team, <laughs> where you're just like, wait, Paul, Paul George has made a lot of All-Star teams. 
It's not. I mean, it's it's not seven time All Star Joe Johnson, but uh, no, yeah. that's true. That's yeah. true. We can't all be ISO Joe. So yeah. anyway, I appreciate I appreciate you continuing this tradition. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate I wish you, you well. I appreciate you coming on and uh, you know working through the uh, <laughs> working through the the, the the kinks with me as we uh, explore the explore this new app. And, and uh, but thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, hopefully you'll you'll come back sometime and we'll 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 uh, in not too long and we'll we'll look and see how wrong we are we were about everything we just said. It's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Seth. Appreciate yeah. it. All right, thanks a lot. All right. All right. Um, let me see. I was gonna. I was gonna do about ten minutes of of kind of Q and A, and if if anyone has has questions in the in the audience, there, uh, jump in the queue, uh, or I'll 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 answer a couple for. Oh well, Zach looks like he has a question, so uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll uh, take a question from Zach and, and see what he's got to say. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Zach, c- congratulations! You're the first. Uh, you're the first <laughs> caller ever in the College Shots podcast. Cool. So, Figure it out. so make it make it a good one. No yeah, pressure. So, <laughs> yep. So this is kind of a two part question. So the sure. first part is, what skill do you think is like most notable by announcers, but actually doesn't really help a team win? And then vice versa, what skill do you think like the general public may not notice, but is like super important for helping a team win? So the first que- the first part is that's a, that's a really good question, and I think so. I don't think it's a a a skill per se. It is sort of the levels of the skill at which it matters. Um, I think kind of the ability, like creating shots for yourself, doing that well is super important. Doing it poorly is actually bad for a team, and doing it mediocre is doing it kind of just average is doesn't actually help a team that much. And so I think that the kind of class of players that tend to get overrated by kind of commentators are the players who can do like the difficult thing really well, but not quite elite. Um, And he's, he's obviously like gotten past that this year, but sort of almost the, um, two players I'll think about is like Jamal Crawford, like uh, excellent tough shot not maker, but not an elite tough shot maker. And so you look at his contributions, considering he did that and not a whole lot else and was a bad defensive player. And he, and especially to a good team, what is he actually bringing, you know, for a team that has championship aspirations. Now a player, a little bit above that, who's still not quite elite, but almost is like DeMar DeRozan, who's I think, Sort of he's a, he I, and and it's a tough conversation to have now because he's been so good this year in kind of an unusual kind of almost point power forward role. Um, but for a lot of his career, he was talked about as kind of a top ten player in the league when really he's probably a top thirty player in the league. And it's 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 funny because like oh you analytics guys hate Demar Derozan. It's like no, it's like we just he came like we think Jimmy Butler is better because defense and these other things. Um, so, but that's that's sort of the skill that that gets overvalued. But you, but DeRozan is kind of a perfect example of if it, if, it, if it kind of passes an imaginary line, then all of a sudden it's massively like possibly championship breakingly important. For you know, it's it's like Giannis was super important for the Bucks last year, but Chris Middleton being an elite shot maker um, was something that certainly in the Brooklyn series was the, was the thing that kind of put them over the top. Yeah, I um, guess is it more important that way? Just because I was reading your book and it's kind of like that eighty-two versus sixteen thing. It's more helpful in the playoffs where yeah. you can just kind of generate it if you're last five seconds. Yeah, shot clock. I mean, it's like it's, it's 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 almost it's a little bit trite, but it's like the you know the notion of of being a floor raiser versus a ceiling raiser and being an okay you know being an innings a eater guy who can who can who can score okay in kind of uh, self created situations. That's like. For a team trying to get from 20 to 45 wins, that's helpful. For a team trying to get from 45 to 60 wins, you're probably looking for players who can either do that at an elite level or create kind of easier, higher value shots for everyone else or can play off the ball and be, you know, a great finisher of, of opportunities themselves. Um, and then the other, the other side of your question, which I think is really good is I think, um, 
I don't, I'm not even sure we have, totally have the vocabulary for it, but I think it's, it's defensive feel. Um, defense is super hard to evaluate, but I think we tend to not notice defenders who are quiet, the defenders who get spots early. And so it's not like they're putting out a fire. It's there was just never a fire there in the first place. It's not a player who's sprinting to close out. It's a player who, when his 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 matchup is catching the ball, is already closed out. So it's like, oh, they just swung the ball around the perimeter. Well, someone, if you if you went back and watched that play again, uh, the the defender may have came come from a long way away, but he anticipated the ball getting to you know someone on the wing that the guy doesn't have a closeout to attack because when he's catching the ball, the defender's already closed out. And there's there's you know any number of, of situations for that sort of all over the floor. And that's really been one of the amazing things about the Warriors' defense this year is they often have like five guys on the floor who are playing defense that way. Um, and that's sort of a, a really hard thing to, to observe, but it's something that like the best teams just do. It just, oh man, they they're just never have any opportunities to, the opponent never has any good opportunities. Well, why is that? It's because the, they're, they're never making any mistakes or giving them any openings. And that takes, you know, feel and anticipation and, you know, the athleticism to physically execute that. So, um, does, 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 does that answer your, your, your questions? Yeah, it does. I follow a lot of soccer analytics too, and it's kind of similar to that. And in soccer, it's more like, dribbling everyone like it's easy to notice and stuff like that and then how helpful is it because you're not really moving the ball into dangerous areas and then same thing for defense it's like in soccer it's about like not making interception or not not tackling because you just block the pass and then they won't be able to make that dangerous pass but it's hard to uh, quantify that yeah no it's uh, uh, paolo maldini who was a yes exactly great defender for uh, the italian national teams and, and and milan for a number of years uh Basically, his 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 quote was, and this was it was named Italian, not English. But his quote was, "If I ever make a tackle, that means I've already made a mistake." Yeah, and so it's it's. I think that's that's a pretty good way to put it. Um, so yeah, I think that's I think that's a that's a great parallel between the two sports. Yep, appreciate it. Yep, thanks a lot, Zach. Um, I got time for one or two more if anyone is interested, or I've got some. I. Uh, I created a nice bank of, of questions from folks uh, from, from Twitter the other day that uh, covered some topics that, that I like to cover. So if I uh, uh, don't, don't see anyone in the queue right now. So I guess I'll finish off by um, uh, answering this one from uh, Dylan at Ted Stepien. Um, good Twitter handle. Um, for those that don't know, Ted Stepien was the owner of the Cavs in the 80s who was so bad of an owner and like constantly sold draft picks and, and stuff like that, that the NBA to just sort of protect the value of a franchise. So it, it, it you know, it, if uh, it's kind of like if, if one person in a neighborhood lets their house go into disrepair, it affects the value of all the other, you know, houses on the block. Um, you, the calves were so underwater with all these poor trades that sent out draft picks and stuff that, 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 that created the Stepien rule, which is teams are, are no longer able to trade consecutive first round picks. So it's like, a team can only be so hopeless in the long term, um, which you know makes it should conceivably make it uh, possibly saleable to a for a reasonable price to a to an, an next potential owner. Anyway, uh, uh, he asks, uh, "Will we ever solve defensive three point percentage? And if so, you think the answer is somewhere in the data we already have or new data like to have uh, if they can if they can uh, track hands uh, for folks that don't know." Uh, the NBA's tracking data is basically just creating dots out of the center mass of players. So it's it's you're sort of inferring that a shot was sort of contested with you know a hand in the face and stuff like that from positioning and movement rather than directly being able to see the hand. Um, so this is a, a tough one for for folks who don't know. It's it's sort of one of the things that uh, gets talked about a lot is how. Um, how little control defenses have over opponent three point percentage. You know, we Ben and I talked about that earlier with kind of the the John Morant splits, and you know, um, three like jump shooting is variant enough without even defenders there that like measuring whether or not the defense impacts it is is pretty difficult. Um, now there there you know there are shot quality metrics that can say that okay this defense is giving up you know better or worse shots, but really even over a full season. The, the range of variance 
we see in what teams allow versus kind of the expected shots they allow. It's about four times as much. So yeah, you can you can defend better and give up worse shots, but still, uh, the actual percentage allowed is is is, is going to be much more determined by you know the expression is it's a make or miss league. Uh, opponents have made shots, so they didn't. Um, so that, that so uh, like the question is really getting at. Is there going to be a way to better evaluate kind of perimeter defense, knowing that three-point field goal percentage is a bad measure of that? And I think, yeah, we can probably get better and more finely tune those expected shots models. But um, in general, I mean, it's just going to be something that's highly variant no matter what. I mean, even with the perfect shot quality model, there's still just going to be a lot of they made shots or they didn't. And there's no rhyme or reason for that. Um, you know, I've, uh, some folks I've talked to about this have, have found that there's certain things teams can do to maybe suppress opponent three-point percentage over and above the things we can presently measure. But those things are generally like, hey, they tip passes and, and, and are physical with players coming off screens. And so just to the general, they play good defense stuff. Um, but that's that's it's hard to pick that out in any real way from sort of the standard variance. So unfortunately, uh, Dylan, the, the 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 short answer is is, is no. I don't think that that uh, there's much hope in the near future for a better understanding of perimeter defense, at least as seen in opponent actually making shots or not from the outside. Um, let me see. Not counting our, uh, <laughs> our our technical foibles at the beginning, I think we've gone about forty five minutes. I think that's a pretty good uh, pretty good first episode, unless someone wants to jump in with uh, any more questions. But uh, thanks a lot, everyone, for for joining us on this maiden voyage. Uh, I've got uh, I don't want to tease anyone before they they formally agree to, but I but uh, I'll be doing a few myself with Q and A and taking uh, taking questions and also. Uh, a lot of interesting folks to talk about, you know, in and around the NBA and sort of some other uh, people who have basketball um, facing ideas from other other realms as well. So hopefully uh, you keep following, keep joining in and uh, join me next time and, and further on the uh, on, on the Colin Shots pod. Um, thanks a lot. And everyone, uh, have, have a good day and have a safe week.